You are listening to a podcast from St. Bart's to find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbart.com.au. Well, it'd be so good to have your Bibles open. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, open at Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, Responding to Jesus. We are particularly considering and looking at different encounters between Jesus and others with a particular focus on really taking notice how people respond, that their response might help inform, shape and challenge our response to Jesus as well, be that for the first time or our response to Jesus over and over again in our lives. There's uh, an outline on the back of the news, so please make use of that if that's of help to you. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, thank you that you have taken the initiative to come to us and to save us. Would you please help us? Help us to respond to your call, to follow you with our all, and to make your purposes our priority. In Jesus' name, amen. In the course of any ordinary day, most Australians will have a variety, a broad variety of encounters with a diverse range of people. I know that's not the case for everyone. Some people, for a whole range of reasons, are really isolated. But the average Australian, be it in person, by text or phone, online, whatever way it might be, has all sorts of personal encounters. In fact, if I asked you this morning to kind of pick a number in your head, you don't need to tell it to someone nearby, you're not going to be quizzed afterwards, but if you had to pick a number in your head of the number of people that you have had contact with, any form of contact, just this week, I suspect that if we went back and watched a video this week, you might not like that idea, but watched a video of everywhere we went and everyone whom we encountered, that we would discover that that number is a gross underestimate of just how many points of contact we actually have. The video would likely show that there are exponentially more people who we have contact with than might initially come to mind. And of course, I don't think that's particularly surprising because so many of those interactions are sort of micro-encounters. They're incidental. They might feel a bit transactional. They don't stand out as being particularly remarkable or memorable. It might be greeting a co-worker or paying for your coffee or saying hello to someone who you pass by in the street. But every now and then, you might just be caught by surprise as what you thought might be an everyday interaction encounter ends up being, quite delightfully, turning into something deeper and far richer than you expected. Reading the Gospels, however, is altogether different because what we discover with Jesus even in what we might assume to be otherwise very ordinary situations, is that his life is saturated with remarkable interactions that evoke a range of extraordinary responses. In five chapters, just five chapters from Matthew chapter 8, so leading up to where we are today, we see that despite his concerns, John the Baptist responds to Jesus by baptising him just as Jesus commanded him to. The devil in the wilderness leaves Jesus after his attempts to lead Jesus astray get nowhere. Simon and Andrew and then James and John answer Jesus' call by immediately following him. 
sick people, along with those who are afflicted by evil, come to Jesus in order to be healed. A leper throws himself at Jesus' feet because he knows that Jesus can change his situation. A centurion grasps and trusts in Jesus' power and authority in an unparalleled way. A furious storm even obeys the rebuke of Jesus and becomes calm. A paralyzed man is forgiven, healed, gets up and walks home. That's just in five chapters. But what I think is really extraordinary is that not only did Jesus evoke a wide range of responses some 2,000 years ago, but that he still evokes a wide range of responses today. Not just opinions about Jesus, but personal responses to Jesus. In fact, at the very heart of the claim of Christianity is not just distant news of a historic figure or a remote God, but the good news that everyone, every person, can encounter and respond to Jesus today. Jesus is still calling people to himself. As we look at the encounter between Jesus and Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector, we see that this call to respond comes from the margins to follow Jesus for God's purposes. So first, the call comes from the margins. So chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. Jesus has just come from healing and forgiving a paralyzed man. That really annoyed some of the religious elite who were really looking on at that time. But now Jesus is about to engage in a series of seriously scandalous encounters. He not only approaches a tax collector and asks that tax collector to follow him, but he then goes and he shares a meal with the tax collector along with all his buddies, all his friends. In Australia, the Australian Taxation Office is actually the third most trusted government service. Now, that's not just because there are only three government services, okay? And it might come as a surprise, but it's true. It's the third most trusted government service, okay? But in the ancient world, tax collectors, a bit like centurions, were almost universally hated. They were seen as collaborators with the occupying force, Rome. They were known for being corrupt and taking advantage of their position. They were usually wealthy because they padded the taxes and they lined their own pockets. They couldn't be witnesses. They were excluded from the synagogues. And to make matters even worse here, Matthew was likely a Jew. One of their own was working with the enemy. The centurion in chapter 8 was an outsider, yet was really loved by the Jewish people. Here in chapter 9, Matthew, the tax collector, was an insider, but he was despised by his own. But Jesus sees him sitting at his booth and calls him to follow him. Matthew, Matthew of all people. Growing up in Brisbane, I remember when the Gateway Bridge first opened. When it was first built, uh, you had to pay your toll, but you couldn't just fly through with an electronic tag and hear the beep. 
but this will be difficult for some people to imagine. You actually had to approach the booth, and if you timed it just right, you could slow down, throw your coin into the machine, watch the gate open, and then go through. But if you weren't prepared, if you didn't have your coin ready, you'd have to stop, fully stop, and pay the money at a toll booth to a person in order that you go through and cross the bridge. Their job was to collect the money so that you could pass. Matthew's toll booth, collecting taxes, was probably for anyone who passed on an international trade route that ran across from Damascus through Capernaum, over to the Mediterranean, and then south towards Egypt. Now, we shouldn't assume that just because the tax collectors were despised that Matthew's, like, really miserable, he's really downcast, and he's questioning all his life choices and doesn't like his job or anything like that. He's actually probably doing really well for himself economically and even socially. He may have been pushed to the margins by his own people, but he's likely got no shortage of friends. We even see that after he follows Jesus, he, he throws a party and invites them all along. It is into the very ordinariness of life, he's simply doing what he would typically do, that Jesus sees him and calls him. Matthew, of all people, is a priority for Jesus. Often, there can be people who we can be tempted just to think they're not interested in the good news. They might say, right on the margins. They're an outside chance. I wonder if anyone comes to mind when you think about that sort of category. Someone you think, well, it's just so unlikely that they'd ever consider the good news. It's just so unlikely that I'd ever become a Christian. Well, that's precisely the sort of person who Jesus prioritised. The calling of Matthew is extraordinary on at least two levels. First, note that it is Jesus who completely takes the initiative. Jesus sees him. Jesus goes to him. Jesus calls him. Matthew has to respond, of course, and we're going to consider that soon but Jesus takes the initiative. This doesn't, of course, mean that this is how every single person is called by Jesus, that if you just sit at work or set up a table at the top of the range or something like that, you're just going to wait for Jesus to rock up. Of course not. The point is, look at the one who has taken the initiative. Sometimes Christians worry that they must not be called because they can't remember some sort of defining dramatic moment. Or people quip, well, if Jesus rocked up like this, then of course I'd follow him. Of course I would respond. But he has. Jesus has seen us. Jesus has come to us. This is the one, Matthew reminds us, who's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And not only do we have his very words calling us back to himself, to God, that have been preserved for us, but he has made it the very mission of his people to declare that good news to every nation, every corner, every dark place, to every margin. Jesus has taken the initiative, and if you're left with any doubt of that, just follow the trajectory of his initiative, which led all the way to the cross. But also note that not only has Jesus taken the initiative, but he has taken the initiative to come to us. 
Matthew's an outsider. He's right on the margins. He's not just away from his people. He's away from God. Some religious approaches say, well, if you want to find God, you need to go to a particular place, master a particular practice, achieve a particular level of holiness, then and only then can you even begin to approach God. Sometimes people think, well, my life is a mess. I'm not good enough to come to God. I need to do some work on my life first, and then I might be able and I might consider going to God. But that's not how Jesus operates. That's not the claim of Christianity, which is really good news, because none of us can be right with God on our own. Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. Jesus comes right into his situation, right into the thick of his mess, even when we don't realise how bad that mess is. He has come to us, calling us from the outside to himself. Second, the call comes to follow Jesus. That's the second part of verse 9. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. The call from Jesus to follow him has a focus and a cost. The focus of the call to follow Jesus is himself. Not not a philosophy, not a set of ideas, not a set of rules, but himself. In the Greco-Roman world, people didn't have a personal relationship with a god or with gods. The gods were powers that you sought to please or appease. They had a god actually for just about everything. And the idea was that if you kept them happy, or at least you didn't offend them, then the hope was that those gods would look after you. The Jewish people were different. They looked forward to a time when they would enjoy a relationship with God, with his his presence, unhindered by, by sin or evil. A time when they would be God's people and he would be their God. Jesus is both the focus and the very fulfilment of that promise. When Jesus invites Matthew to follow him, it's not just a casual invitation to come and see what's happening. It's an invitation to Matthew to make Jesus the very centre of his life. That Jesus would become the most important, the ultimate thing. There's quite a few people I know, and even in this community, who, uh, because of their job, they're regularly on call. And I have to tell you that out of all my friends who have to regularly be on call, it is one of their least favourite parts of their job. I don't know anyone who goes, I'm so looking forward to being on call this weekend, just can't wait. Or, oh, it's it's so sad, it's three weeks until I'm on call again. And of course, probably one of the reasons, or some of the reasons, the least favourite parts of their job is because they don't know when the call is going to come. They have to stay within 10 minutes of, of the workplace. But actually, even deeper, my hunch is that one of the main reasons they don't like being on call is because it will almost always mean someone and something is going to burst in and disrupt and displace what you're doing or what you want to do. The call will interrupt your sleep, your meals, your longing just to relax a bit or spending time with others. When you're on call, your priorities and your plans come second place. The call to Jesus means that everything else takes a back seat, takes second place. It's not that everything else doesn't matter, 
But then when you start to follow Jesus, and as you continue to follow Jesus, we get about orientating everything else in service of him, because he's Lord. And so that means we want to use our whole life, our, our time, our career, our finances, gifts, relationships for him. But we also want to shape our whole selves, our thoughts, our hearts, our priorities, our longings, like him. So for him and like him. In the modern world, we're encouraged, we're implored to follow our dreams and our own hearts. But the gospel says, actually, the ultimate one you need to follow is not yourself, but Jesus. That we would want to go where he goes, do as he does, love as he loves, prioritises what he prioritises. Sometimes that's really hard to figure out. Sometimes it's very difficult to discern. But it starts with a desire to follow him with our all. And sometimes that will be costly. Over the years, I've really counted it as one of the, the most profound privileges, one of the greatest privileges to witness people orientate and reorientate their lives over and over again to Jesus in all sorts of ways, many costly ways. Sometimes that's some aspect of a relationship. Sometimes it's a particular habit or a practice. Other times it's how they've approached their work or still how they've deployed their resources. It's a figuring and a, and a reconfiguring of a longing and a seeking to ensure that instead of trying to contort God's priorities and plans to line up with what I want, that my priorities and plans would line up with what God wants. Matthew left a whole way of life. Some of the fishermen who, were follow, who left to follow Jesus, well, they probably, if they changed their minds or things didn't work out, could actually go back to fishing. In fact, some of them did that for a little bit. But after Matthew got up from that booth, there was no turning back. Jesus speaks about the cost of following him in a number of places, and often he encounters people who are really keen, but there's something they want to, don't want to give up, or they just don't want to do it now. They said, I'll do it later. I'll think about it down the track. The Pharisees didn't understand, so they had to go away and think about it. But Matthew heard the call of Jesus, got up, and followed him. And of course, that wasn't the end of the story of Matthew, because in response to the call, Matthew got about living for God's purposes. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, Matthew is so excited about following Jesus that this complete change of direction in his life, that the most natural thing that he does next is throw a party and he introduces all of his friends to Jesus. I love that. But there's a problem. In the ancient world, eating food, sharing a table, is not just eating food together. This is an intimate act of friendship. And so when the Pharisees see this, they're absolutely scandalised. They're incredulous. How could Jesus do this? They can't fathom how God would be interested in these people. They really don't like the guest list. 
The Pharisees avoided anyone on the list of sinners and unrighteous because they didn't want to be morally corrupted by their proximity to these people. The last thing that the Pharisees would want to be caught doing is sharing a meal with these people. In their way of thinking, any association would cause moral and spiritual infection, like being contaminated, like catching a cold from someone who is sick. So we know the principle of that pretty well, I'm pretty sure. Uh, During COVID, we did all sorts of things to stop the spread. We donned masks, restricted outings. If someone was sick, you didn't go near them. We even bumped the button at the pedestrian walk because we didn't want to touch it with our hands. Of course not. You didn't want to get sick. I remember the very first time that we took our kids down to the park during a lockdown. It was allowed. We you know, did the right thing, but during lockdown, we went down to the park. We had no idea of how contagious this was going to be, of how bad this virus was. So we warned the kids before we went down, don't touch the benches, don't touch anything, and whatever you do, don't drink from the water fountains, okay? Within two minutes of getting to Queen's Park, one of the kids walked up and licked a pole. <laughs> They'd never done that before. They've never done that since. But I remember thinking, oh no. What if someone sick has touched it? We didn't want them to get sick. That's what the Pharisees were like when it came to moral and spiritual infection. They did everything possible to try and maintain their moral purity. But not only have they missed that they too are sinners, that no one is healthy, but they failed to see how all who follow God are caught up in his purposes. Part of his purpose, indeed his entire coming and going to the cross, is to pave a way to draw the lost, to draw all people back to himself. Jesus has taken all of the infection of sin and evil on himself on the cross and defeated it. He's done that so that those who follow him have nothing to fear because of God's mercy. Matthew wasn't worried about being infected by these people's sin. He longed to infect them with the good news of Jesus. But the religious elites, they just can't handle that sort of generosity. It it seems outrageous. Jesus knows that. He picks up on that. That's why he says to them, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is actually quoting from Hosea chapter 6. They may have been perfect in their religious compliance, but as evidenced by their lives, they didn't really know their scriptures. For all their effort, they had missed the point. The religious folk thought they had everything sorted, that the kind of people Jesus and Matthew hung out with couldn't be saved. But Jesus is saying, religious compliance won't save you, you need mercy. And real godliness involves having the same priorities as God. Once we've tasted God's mercy, God expects us, God commissions us to share that mercy and the good news of that mercy with people even not like us, not like you. Why is Jesus eating with these people? Because they too are invited to receive the King.
one of my favourite passages, and indeed one of the favourite passages of many people, is Romans 8, 28. Uh, we love the beginning of that especially, and we know that, God, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But we often forget about the next bit. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Jesus effectively says to the Pharisees, you've missed the point. You've not only missed that you too are in need of saving, but you've missed that I've come to save the whole world. Or as Tom Wright sums up, while some religious leaders saw their task to keep themselves in quarantine, away from every possible source of moral and spiritual infection, Jesus saw himself as a doctor. He'd come to heal the sick. Verse 12. Jesus said, There's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. No one on their own is healthy. We all need the ultimate doctor. The ultimate doctor who heals us from sin and death. But some are not interested in God's examination. Jesus has taken the initiative. He has come to us. He's done everything that anyone might enjoy a relationship with him forever. This is an encounter that invites a response. We've got to recognise our need, respond to the one who heals, and reorientate our lives to follow him and his kingdom purposes. And that's exactly what Matthew did. Let's pray. Precious Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for your extraordinary grace, for the initiative that you have taken to seek us out, and especially in the sending of your Son, which took him all the way to the cross. Lord, I particularly pray for anyone here today who has not yet responded to your call. Lord, I pray that in the power of your Spirit that you would help them to not delay, to remove any roadblocks of their heart, that they would respond to the good news of who Jesus is and put their trust in him. Lord, we really thank you for your mercy, your extraordinary mercy, especially that which we see poured out through your son on the cross. We pray that we might be growing in our understanding, our delight, our experience, but also the sharing of your mercy and the good news of your mercy wherever you go, wherever you take us, wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.